Good afternoon to all of you. It's good to be together today and to see this back section filled up way back there. Um, maybe some are still social distancing, but most of us are not <laughs> by now. Anyway, what a blessing it is to be together and to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, if you are a part of this church, you know we celebrate this every single Lord's Day. Amen? It's something that, that we relish and we love. But it is uh, to take a special note of when the world even kind of acknowledges that there's something, whether they call it Easter, maybe it's bunnies. But here we come together and we want to learn and consider the resurrection of our Lord. So we're going to be looking at Matthew 28, one of the gospel accounts. And uh, before we get there, I have a rather lengthy introduction I want to kind of take us through. And then we'll expound uh, that particular text. All the gospel writers give extensive writings to Passion Week, the last week of our Lord and Savior, and all the events leading up to the crucifixion and even the resurrection. You've got the, the, all those events, those encounters with the Pharisees that, that took place um, that, that takes several chapters of the Gospels, and finally Passover comes, and our Lord institutes the Lord's Supper for His new covenant people. And He institutes that. And then, then going to Gethsemane, and you'll remember there where He takes the inner three, His closest disciples, and says, pray with me, I'm burdened and heavily distressed. And He went about a stone's throw from them and was on His knees praying, Father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. Luke's account even gives the, the added detail that the intensity of what was coming was so profuse upon him that he was bleeding, as it were, drops of blood. And then the arrest, all the mock trials, even the high priest Caiaphas and Herod and Pilate, took place all night long that Thursday into Friday morning. Good Friday came, and he was crucified. You know the account. You know that he was beaten and bruised and given a crown of thorns and mocked and humiliated like no one's ever been humiliated. And then finally, he's told to bear his own cross and he can't bear it for very long. And then Simon the Cyrene is brought in to bear the cross of Christ. And then finally he's nailed to that cross. A rugged cross, as it were. You know, there wasn't fine polished wood then. It was probably rather coarse. But as you know, he's nailed to the cross as the cross is laying on the ground through his wrists, through the, the, the ankles and the feet. And then that cross would be lifted up as he's nailed, right? And, and then it would be put into a hole where it would plop in there so it would stay sturdy. Just think of that initial shock of, ah, you know, the intensity. Those first three hours, they were told that he was on the cross for six hours. Those first three hours, all the mocking, the jeering. He saved others! He can't even save himself. Spit upon the soldier's antics blasphemers, the elders and the chief priests scoffing at him. Even the robbers that were there were reviling him those first three hours. But then suddenly something happened. 
it's estimated roughly 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. He's on the cross. High noon! In the midst of the day, what happens? Darkness comes upon the land. And those last three hours, we're not told much. All the jeering, all the mocking, we can just think, the muttering that was loud just began to get quieter and quieter and quieter as darkness came upon the land. An intense darkness. Like uh, during one of the plagues, right? In Exodus, it's a, when darkness was one of those, it was a darkness that could be felt. Tense darkness. It was significant. Darkness in Scripture, throughout the Scriptures, is a sign of judgment. And this surely, as Joel says, a day of darkness and gloom. Jesus suffered intense and indescribable agonies as the Father poured out His wrath upon His Son. A just wrath. A wrath, somebody had to pay for our sins. It's either we pay for it ourselves, or there's a substitute. Just like your substitute teacher when you were in school. Every now and again, that teacher, your your regular teacher would be gone and there'd be a substitute. Jesus was our substitute. And He took all of the sin that we deserved upon Himself. Peter says He bore our sins in His body. Hell came to Calvary that day as he was made sin. The one, the innocent, the pure, the sinless one, the, the one that was had never sinned in his entire life became sin for us on the cross. Finally, in the midst of that darkness, presumed mostly silent scene about 3 p.m., the intensity of the Father hiding His face from His Son as He poured out His wrath upon His own Son for us. It got to the point to where there was a climax of the vicarious sufferings of Christ for our sins in which He cried out, Ali, Ali, lava sabachthani! My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Bible tells us that at that time, Remember, we've been in Hebrews for a couple of years. We studied the tabernacle. We studied those curtains, the thickness of those curtains. That the curtain was torn from what? Top to bottom. Showing us what? Two things. One is that no man has done that. And that now there's free access to God because of what Christ has done. There's even the account of, in Matthew 27 and verse 54, the centurion a high-up official, it says, the centurion and those that were with him keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. The centurion who hated Jews, a Roman, hated Passover, was there to maintain order with all the hustle and bustle of Passover, with so many people coming to Jerusalem, and he makes that bold profession. Now, did the events leading up to the crucifixion, was this something that God hadn't planned enough of, and that he, he, you know, no, this is all according to the plan of God. And Peter's great Pentecost sermon, he says, this man, Jesus, delivered over by the 
predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you Jews nailed to a cross. But God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. Christ's resurrection from the dead confirms that the Father was satisfied with what Christ had done. That He had accomplished His will in dying for the sins of all people. We're told that when evening had come, that scene where He gave up His Spirit, there's so much more that could be said. The seven words from the cross were just summarizing to lead us up to the resurrection. Joseph of Arimathea came and asked Pilate for the body of Jesus and wrapped him up. In verse 60 it says, And he laid him in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the entrance of it. So Joseph, a rich man who had become a disciple, donated a tomb that had not been used you see, we celebrate his birth around Christmas, the incarnation, right? His birth was in a virgin womb. His death was in a virgin tomb, a tomb that had never been used before. And finally, 28.1 of Matthew, now after the Sabbath, it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. Brethren, Hands down, this is the most beautiful sunrise ever. It's the most beautiful sunrise ever. Jesus had raised from the dead. The, the stone was rolled away, and the sun was shining. The very first Christian Sabbath happened on this very day. The very first Lord's Day, as it were, happened on this day. Truly, we could say, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Well, let's read our text. Um, Matthew 28. I'm going to read all the way to 15. We're going to expound 1 to 10. I'll make brief reference to 11 to 15, but just to give us a fuller picture. <clears throat> Reading from the New American Standard Version. Now, after the Sabbath... As it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave, and behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said, to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who had been crucified, but he is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him, and behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with, great, with fear and great joy and ran to report to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met him and greeted him 
And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid and go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee and there they will see me. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and they did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews as it is to this day. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your word is God-breathed and inspired, that we can trust it and have confidence that every jot and tittle is absolute truth. We thank you for the accounts that we have, large portions of the New Testament and the Gospels given to the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And Lord, as we come to appreciate the glories of the resurrection and what that means for us, that we too will be raised, Lord, give us understanding and insight into your word this day, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Matthew 28 is just not a mere conclusion to the first 27 chapters. It focuses on the central event of the death and resurrection, in particular, of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's central to God's redemptive plan, is Christ dying and Him raising. Paul preached the resurrection throughout the book of Acts. The Church of Christ celebrates this resurrection every Lord's Day, as we come together on the first day of the week on the Christian Sabbath and worship Him. There were countless Old Testament prophecies given to what would, these events that would happen. And the resurrection is the cornerstone of the gospel. There's no salvation if you don't have a resurrection. If, if there's no hope of a resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15 sets that out very clear. And all four Gospels focus specifically and explicitly on the emptiness of the tomb, which focuses that it was a physical resurrection. The results of the empty tomb is that Jesus really is who He said He was. You consider some of the prophecies. He had no stately form or majesty that we should take notice of Him. He was an ordinary man. Yes, He was the God-man. An ordinary man. He, he was a carpenter for the first 30 years of his life growing up with Joseph and Mary. And he excelled in that, right? And it's not as though the angels came down and helped plane the wood and you know, did all the, the hard work for him. No, he, he did that. He was a man's man until the time came for his ministry. And he shocked everyone, all the religious leaders, right? I am the I am, Right? And, and John 8.58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. A clear connection to Exodus 3.14, as Moses is called, right? And, and what happens? Uh, Moses, who should I say that uh, sent me? As he's shaking in his 
bare feet by the burning bush, and uh, I am who I am. That claim throughout the Gospels, but even in John 8 here, was so shocking to the scribes and the Pharisees that it says, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. How dare you make yourself equal with God? Truth about the resurrection is is inessential to being saved. If you claim to be a Christian and claim to love Jesus, but I don't believe there was any resurrection. He was a good teacher and all that. No, you cannot be saved. Without the resurrection, Christianity would be powerless and amount to just wishful thinking, gee, I hope type of thing. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Now, you know, every couple years, the Discovery Channel or some other network comes out with new proof that, that, oh, he wasn't raised. We found the tomb, there's bones and all of this, trying to debunk the very truths of Holy Scripture. We've got new proof that he never did raise bodily. Complicate that or add to that the whole COVID pandemic of two years, which has made many, even more, many more even question the very existence of God and even the goodness of God because of the difficulties they've been through. Well, the resurrection is true, and there's much evidence for it. First of all, the Bible is God-breathed. It's without error. Also, though, the Bible records the failures and the victories of men. It's an honest book about sins, uh, of the sins of even our biblical heroes. <clears throat> Look, let's read the book of Genesis. You've got dysfunctional families. You've got incest. You've got all kinds of stuff. Uh, you know, you want to make a movie of the book of Genesis and you'll have a blockbuster probably because of all, everything that's included here. The Bible records the failures of the biblical heroes. God is pleased to use weak men to accomplish great purposes for him. Amen? He is. And, and, and so why fabricate a, a resurrection? It's already honest about all these other things. Why make up a story? It's not some sentimental story that the disciples got together in that upper room in Acts 1 and said, well, let's come up with this. No. In fact, these apostles then, most would be martyred for their faith. Why come up with some kind of fairy tale and then be willing to die for it? The unity and the testimony of the four Gospel writers are there. The New Testament records ten post-resurrection appearances. Five on Sunday, and five more during the 40 days leading to the ascension of Christ. And again, people will try to explain it away. It wasn't quite, it was dusk, you know, you couldn't really make it out. You know, they just thought they saw that, or it was a hallucination. But no, these are not stories made up by the church. Just consider this. All the varied times of day, the various locations from Jerusalem to Galilee, there was public um, appearances, there was private appearances, there was uh, appearances to women, appearances to men, there was appearances to individuals, and then to a group of 500 at once, 1 Corinthians tells us. 
So let's dig into the text here. Um, a look at Matthew's account of the resurrection. The women arrive at the grave after the Sabbath while it is still dark. It says, it began to dawn towards the first day of the week. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Now, the different gospel writers will record it in different ways. John says, while it was still dark. Matthew says, as it began to dawn, likely they set out on the journey while it was dark, and as they approached the tomb, it was beginning to dawn. Mary Magdalene, remember what Jesus did for her in the Gospel of John, casting out the seven demons? There was a love and a devotion for her Savior. Why did they come to the tomb? Did they come to see the risen Lord? No. They came with spices, the other Gospels would tell us, to anoint the body. In fact, I think it's Mark is that they were, they were even asking, they were worried about who would move the heavy stone for them. So they were coming to anoint the body, but, and some criticize these women for their lack of faith. Um, you know, didn't they recall the words of Jesus? But let's not overlook their great love and devotion to Christ. What they may have lacked in faith was made up by a loving compassion, and yea, I would say even courage to go. They were, by the way, these women were at Calvary. They were right there at the cross. They were in the garden as he was buried, so they knew exactly where he was laid in the tomb. And here they go and check on him. What about the 11 disciples? What about the men? What about the men? Well, they scurried from the cross. There's no account that they were looking on as he was laid in the tomb. These were women of courage and love and devotion. In verse 2 to 4, we see the angel of the Lord appears here, and it says in verse 2, And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. One of, the, one of the other Gospels says there was two angels. You know, those types of things are, are really irrelevant. But in God's, this is in God's redemptive plan throughout history, he uses earthquakes to what? Just like today, right? When you start feeling the rumbling and tumbling, does he get your attention? Yes. And that's exactly how God uses earthquakes. William Hendrickson says uh, an earthquake is, you should hear, the, like, think the words, Listen, the Lord is speaking. And it's no different than here. There's an earthquake. Now, there was an earthquake just two days before. Remember that? In 2747, I believe. And and the first one was at the crucifixion of our Lord, remember? And it's as though the earth quakes in sorrow that the Son of God has been slain. But here, the second one, just a couple days later, the earth is quaking with joy at the resurrection of Jesus. There will be future earthquakes at the second coming of Christ where tombs would be opened as well. Now, why did the angel come? Did the angel have to come to remove the stone? Did the angel come to let Jesus out? Good question, kids. <laughs> right? No, of course not. 
The angel didn't come to, to roll the stone away so that Jesus could come out. But it's rather so that we and the women and the disciples could look in, right? And so the stone is rolled away. Look, this angel's appearance is, I mean, fascinating, right? It's uh, lightning. His clothes is white as snow. It's a glorious picture of this, uh, the brightness, the pureness that is there. And, And you consider that that angel was just dispatched from heaven, right? He sent down. In fact, you can even picture the scene in heaven. There's, there's already rejoicing because Christ has been raised. And then God is going to dispatch an angel to go for this task. And you can imagine the angels that, I want to go, I want to go. You know, like it says in Peter, they're, they long to try to understand the, the mysteries of, of how God deals with sinful men. And they're very limited, but he's radiant, coming from heaven, a glorious place. And what an immense privilege for this angel to come here. Well, what does it say about verse 4? It says, The guards shook with fear, or for fear, of him and became like dead men. Now, do you think these guards were like some of our modern military that's, you know, very weak, impotent men? Or were these Roman soldiers that were big, burly men that were sent there to guard, right? These are, these are, these are Roman soldiers. They don't just quake with fear at nothing. But this was such an incredible, awesome sight that they not only quake, by the way, it's the same um, root as earthquake, the seismos, as they shook, They were shaking like an earthquake, is what the text is actually saying here. They shook for fear of the angel, and they became like dead men. Well, let's look at the revelation of the angel. All of that is nothing's even been communicated. And the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. Don't you love those words? So often when an angel comes on the scene, uh, most times, do not be afraid. Words of assurance. Words of comfort. Words of balm to troubled hearts. Do not be afraid. Many times, God's people are told not to fear. And what does He say here? He says, do not be afraid For I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here. He is risen. He is risen. Come, and John's account says, come, see the place with your own eyes. And there was the linens all rolled up. The women, unlike the soldiers who shook with fear and were like dead men, find comfort and solace from the words of the angel. But they must see Jesus. Their hearts are still troubled. We haven't seen our Savior. I see the empty tomb, but where is Jesus? And while seeking and looking for Jesus, verse 6, He is not here, He is risen. Come see the place where He's lying. Now go quickly and tell His disciples that He is risen from the dead. By the way, who raised Jesus from the dead? The whole Trinity is involved with this because we're told Jesus himself in the Good Shepherd passage, our scripture reading just a couple weeks ago, 
No one has taken my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and to take it up again. We're also told that the Father raised him from the dead. I read it earlier, Acts 2.24, and God raised him up. Then we're also told in Romans 8.11, but if the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit. The whole Trinity is involved with this. Go quickly and tell his disciples. You see, fascination of the resurrection must be turned to proclamation, a telling, a declaring, a sharing of the good news. Now, I find it, um, maybe it's because I can identify with Peter, sometimes saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, and putting my foot in my mouth, but the special attention that Scripture gives to Peter. For example, in Mark 16, 7, specifically tells the women, go and tell the disciples and Peter. Because remember that interchange, what had happened with Peter? He denied the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter, you've got all the appearances, and it's, it's interesting that Paul lists Peter first in the category of witnesses. Luke 24, 34, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. Peter's the one in Matthew 16 and made that great, bold profession of faith. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then, of course, he denies the Lord being scared by little servant girls that were ten, near the fire. And, and it says, but Peter, she, surely you were one of the Galileans. That's a paraphrase, uh, whatever it says right before this. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. In verse 61 of Luke, it says that the Lord turned and looked at Peter. The gaze of the Savior upon his disciple. He looked at the Lord, and then Peter remembered the word of the Lord that had been told him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. But he went out and wept bitterly. In John's account, um, you've got to love how the, the different Gospels focus on different aspects. On John's account, there's this... Uh, a restoration, there's a recommissioning of Peter. And you know the account. I wasn't planning on reading it, but I think it might be helpful. <clears throat> After he has appeared, they've uh, drug in the fish, they've eaten. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, tend my lambs. When Jesus asked, do you love me? He's saying, agape, love. But then when Peter answers and reaffirms, he uses a completely different Greek word, phileo, right? It's more of a friendship type of love, not an unconditional sacrificing type of love. So this interchange is going on that doesn't come through the English language. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. 
same Greek words, and he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things, and you know that I love you, that I agape you. And Jesus said, tend my sheep. I think there's 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 an essence here of which, truly, truly, I say to you that when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished, and when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now, this he said, signifying the kind of death that he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to them, follow me. So you got this a recommissioning, as it were, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep. There's a forgiveness that's given here. There's an assurance. And, and brethren, how long was it to the preaching of Pentecost? Acts 2? Read that sermon this afternoon. This is a new man. He's got courage. He's got boldness. His Lord has assured him that I am with you. I have not rejected you. And I'm calling you to this task. A beautiful picture. And that's the way it is for us. The Lord deals with us individually. He wants to come to us and deal with us in our individual struggles and and all of that, and, and he wants to give us a bold assurance that we might be those that proclaim this message with great boldness. Well, the women leave in verse 8 here, and they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. They leave in obedience with that blend of fear and joy, well mixed, a strange mixture of awe and great, great joy. In verses 9 and 10, you have the reverent response of the women to Jesus, the first of the ten appearances. Verse 9, And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Jesus appears to the women. He meets them. In the old King James, it's all hail. It's an encouraging word that can mean a word of salutation. It's warm. It's not a shame to be close. It's a word of benediction where he's wishing them well. It's a word of pacification to encourage them to not be afraid. And what was their response? High five. Hey, no. They fell down and worshiped. They realized this is who he said he was. And they wrapped their arms around his leg. Look at that. They took hold of his feet. It's literally to seize or to grasp and to hold tightly is the nuance of the Greek here. So it wasn't just, you know, a little light thing. It's, you know, holding on to his feet. And it says they worshiped him. They worshiped him. They knew for certain that this was the divine Son of God, and in adoration and praise, this was their appropriate response. Furthermore, this proves that it wasn't some vision or that some ghost, because as they went to seize, it would, where's his feet, right? It it wasn't that at all. It's a true bodily, physical resurrection. Well, Jesus comforts them and sends them on their way. He perceived that they were in troubled spirits. He again, do not be afraid. But then he gives two commands. Go, 
and tell. Go proclaiming the same message that the angel had given. And we too have a responsibility to go and tell. We don't hold this treasure in earthen vessels. We have a responsibility to to share this message with others. What a joy, what a victory that we have knowing that Christ has risen from the dead. And as we've been learning in Hebrews, He is our great high priest that we can come to the throne of grace with what? Fear, shame, doubting, with confidence knowing that we will find grace and help in time of need. We have this communion with Him. That curtain has been torn. We now have free access. We can come at any time. We don't have to go through a priest. And if you're here today and you're Roman Catholic and you feel like you've got to go to a man and the man will therefore transmit the message to Mary and maybe Mary would get it to Jesus, you've got it all wrong. We have direct access if you are in Christ. Well, a couple of applications for us and we'll wrap up. Many people doubt the truth of the resurrection. Many people are scoffers. I mean, look at the text. We read it earlier where um, where they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, and you are to lie and say that the disciples came to let them out. For money, Christ was betrayed, and for money, the enemies of the cross tried to hide the truth. Jesus himself had already said, I am the resurrection and the life, right? He who believes in me shall not die. Even though he dies, he shall live. Perhaps you sit here today and you're visiting and someone brought you here and you refuse to believe this whole story of the resurrection of Christ. Maybe you never thought of the fact that Christ is indeed raised and he has conquered death and all that are in Christ have the confidence that we too will conquer death and will be rewarded that life. But... Because He's raised, He's also going to come and judge the world. If you're outside of Christ, you will stand before Him. Are you ready to stand before the Son of God? In Revelation 1, who says He has eyes, as it were, like a flame of fire. He can see deep inside of you every thought and intention of the heart, every motive that causes you to do all the things that you do. Let's go back. Let's go back a little bit. Matthew 27, you remember the scene here, verses 15 and 16. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. Remember this scene down in verse 21. But the governor said to them, Which of these two men do you want me to release? And they said, Barabbas. Imagine you were in the crowd. Imagine that that you were there and and Pilate asked if Barabbas should be released. And and Barabbas, this notorious prisoner, or Jesus, the one that came to deliver from the slavery of sin. In verse 22, and Pilate said, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And the crowd united their voices and said, what? Crucify! Crucify Him! Verse 23, and He said, what? Why? What evil has He done? And they kept shouting all the more. In other words, they did not consider 
anything else, crucify, crucify. Verse 26, and then he released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, they handed him over to be crucified. Imagine you were in the crowd. Imagine you had to give a vote. Imagine you would either say, crucify, or bring Barabbas. Barabbas represents the world's empty values. Christ represents all good and righteous. Uh, Leahy in his book says, how would you vote? Take a long, hard look into your heart. How would you vote? Barabbas goes free and leaves the prisoner behind. Or Christ experiences hell in order to break the prison doors open and liberate prisoners. There sits Pilate, shifty, uneasy, defensive. And there is Jesus, bruised and bleeding and silent. What do we do with Jesus? How does your heart respond? Is it crucify Him? If you're in the crowd, or is it like Thomas, another resurrection appearance, my Lord and my God? Look, our time is short, and someday you will stand before God. The hymn says, the sands of time are sinking, the dawn of heaven breaks, the summer morn I've signed for, sighed for, the fair sweet morn awakes, dark, dark hath been the midnight, midnight. But dayspring is at hand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. How can you be acceptable to God? You've got leprosy. You've got a plague of sin. You see, you inherited this from your great-great-great-great-grandfather, Adam. You inherited this sin nature. David says, I was brought forth in iniquity from my mother's womb. Every single one of us have, has a leprosy, a spiritual leprosy that cannot be removed by anything except for the blood of Christ. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm quite confident that every single person here, and even my unconverted friend that that is here and hearing my voice, would you dare say I've never told a lie, I've never looked on a woman lustfully, would you dare say that I've never sinned in any way? If you've offended in one area, you're guilty of all, James says. Guilty, guilty, guilty. We have all missed the mark of perfection. Therefore, our sin has to be dealt with. God is holy. He can't, well, I'll give a pass for him back there. I mean, he's got a flawed record and he hasn't repented. He hasn't trusted my son, but I'll let him in anyway. God is not like that. He's a God of justice. You are not going to get into his presence and to heaven unless your sin has been dealt with. But that was the very mission of Christ, right? And um, Matthew 121, the angel told Joseph, she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He came on a mission, a rescue mission to save us. From the very beginning, that was it. Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to serve The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to give His life as a ransom for many. He paid the ransom that we owed. That's the only way we can be saved, is to trust in Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Salvation is a free gift, and it's being offered to you today through a weak vessel But the truth of God is that whosoever will, let him come. 
The one that comes to me I will in no wise cast out, Jesus said. The wages of sin are death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you could earn it by works, you would be boasting. But you can't. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You can't earn your way to heaven. It's not, okay, God does 99%. You just have this one little percent. And some may say you've got to fill out a card. You've got to come up here. You've got to do some, some something, right? But the Bible says none of that. We repent and believe, and it's even His Spirit that regenerates us, that enables us to repent and believe. We can't earn our way to heaven if even 1% depended upon us, we would fail. Jesus did not come to call the righteous. So if you're here today and you're self-righteous and you're feeling pretty good about yourself, you got a good track record going, He came to call sinners to repentance. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Whosoever will, let him come. I love that scene in John uh, 7, verse 37, at the great feast. On the last day, at the great day of the feast, Jesus stood out and cried, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He is the fountain of living waters. He is a Savior that will never, ever, ever let you down. But you must come on His terms. Come and embrace Him. Let's pray. Our Father, how we thank You for Your Word that does not return void, and we thank You that we can give special attention even this day to the glorious resurrection of our Savior. Lord, we pray that You would have Your way with each and every one here, that, that for believers that we would have a renewed appreciation for the incredible plan of salvation and the work of Christ on our behalf. And, and Lord, for those that are here that do not know You, that, that You would give them no rest, that You'd give them no peace, that You would draw them effectually by the power of Your Spirit. And we pray not only for those in here, but Lord, that even on this day, this Lord's Day around the world, that many would come to faith in Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.